We have been looking through the book of Deuteronomy. It's the uh, fifth book in the Bible, and so we just thought, let's pick a book and, and work our way through it. And actually, just to give you a little context of, of this book, uh, basically the song that we just sang kind of sets up the context for it, because this is a book that is basically a series of sermons that Moses preached with the people of Israel right on the verge of moving into the Promised Land. They are, they are right on the edge of the Jordan River and are about to move into the Promised Land. So that's like kind of the context for the book. And tonight, we come to probably the central core of not only the book of Deuteronomy, but probably the Old Testament and arguably so the Bible as a whole. This is, uh, for, for Jewish people, sort of the confessional centerpiece of the entire Bible. This is known as the Shema. It is sort of the, the Hebrew word of the first uh, word of this passage. And uh, this is still recited in Hebrew by you know, practicing Orthodox Jewish people today. And it's prayed twice daily for you know, traditional Orthodox Jewish believers. So it's not only unbelievably important for Jewish folks, but it's unbelievably important uh, for us as well as we explore the Bible, because here it is, sort of the um, centerpiece of the whole thing. So let me read it for us, and then we're going to jump in and check it out. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is God's word. Let me pray for us before we jump in. Uh, Father, we ask for your help tonight. Um, you know that we have no hope of understanding what this passage of Scripture means apart from your help. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we would really be able to see what you would have for us. And um, we ask only in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Tonight, I want to pose a, a brief thought experiment here. What if we did an audit on your life? You know, like uh, the IRS comes and does a financial audit and digs through all of your financial records, you know, I don't know, lays them out on a big table and sorts out your entire life about what you spent and what you, uh, you know, spent money on and all that. But what if we not only did an audit of your financial records, but what if we did an audit of your entire existence? Not only the things that you spent money on, but the things that you spent time on and laid out your entire calendar, minute by minute, everything, every person you've ever spent time with, every event you've ever gone to. And then we started digging out all your thoughts as well and lay those on the table in any way that thoughts could be laid out on a table. We sort through all that. Now on top of that, we pull out your credit card bill, everything you've spent money, money on, and your iTunes list, every, everything you've ever listened to all your entire life, your internet browser, every website you've ever visited, the movies that you've watched, the time that you've spent your entire life laid out on one table. Now, as awkward as that would be, just that alone, what if we raised an even deeper question and said, what would all of this data reveal about what it is that you love? What would all of this data reveal about what it is that you love? And so you have to ask yourself, okay, if I look at my life, what is it that I love? 
And I know that, that is an incredibly invasive and personal question to ask from the beginning. But I think that that question is raised by this passage because this passage informs of us of what it is that we are to love. Look, again, look in verse 5. It just tells you flat out, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There it is. Done. Love God. Well, let's look at it tonight. And, and I think that as we look at this passage, it's going to raise three particular questions. Why should we love God? To what extent should we love God? And how do we do it? So why, to what extent, and how? So, okay. If the call for you and me is to love God, the first question, the most obvious question is why? Why should we do this? Well, as Deuteronomy typically goes, it gives you the reason before it gives you the command. And so the the reason is found in verse 4. It just tells you flat out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what in the world does that mean? The Lord is one. Well, okay, at a fundamental level, to say that the Lord is one means that there is only one Lord. There is only one God. He is the only uh, game in town. There are no other options. There are no, there are no other real gods vying for our attention. It's basically the same idea just two chapters before in Deuteronomy 4.35, which reads this. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. But I want you to see that this passage isn't just sort of asserting some kind of naked monotheism. It actually specifies who this God is. If you notice in the passage, Lord, here O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord is in all caps, all capital letters. Some of you may know this, but anytime you see the word Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, that is the English way of translating what the Hebrew name for God is. Y'all may have heard it before, Yahweh. This is, this is how... English translators translate it as Lord, all caps. So basically what this is saying is not just saying, okay, there is one God out there, though it is saying that, but it is specifying that the only God that there is is the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Yahweh himself. He is the only option. Now, of course, we live in a culture that finds that statement unbelievably offensive and objectionable. How can you say that your God is the only one? That is unbelievably offensive. That is unbelievably uh, objectionable. And I know that some of you in this room probably identify with that sentiment as far as how can you, say, how can you be so exclusive, that's so arrogant, that's so judgmental, that's so superior to other people. And this is a way bigger issue than we can really address right here, but let me just try and take a stab at it in passing. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, when all this stuff came out about with uh, Tiger Woods um, and his life, uh, Britt Hume, who is a, a part-time analyst at, at Fox, uh, said this on air. So let me quote it. He says this. He, makes a, he made a comment basically about the fact that Tiger Woods is a Buddhist. This is what he said. I don't think that faith, referring to Buddhism, offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. And he went on to explain that he hopes that Tiger becomes a Christian because this is really the only avenue that he'll find recovery and sort of get out of this mess that he's in with his life. And of course, because he said this on national television, he caught lots of flack over it. Tons of trouble, people just beating him up over it. One uh, Washington Post uh, writer, this guy named Thomas Shales, just totally unloaded on Brit Hume for saying that. And here's basically what he said. Another quote. He says, 
Hume has a message for Woods, but lots of people will have a message for Hume. First off, apologize. You got to. Just say that you are a man who is comfortable with his faith, so comfortable that sometimes he gets a wee bit carried away with it. If Hume wants to do the satellite age equivalent of going door to door and spreading what he considers the gospel, he should do it on his own time and not try and cross-pollinate religion and journalism and use Fox facilities to do it. I mean, you hear basically what he's saying. This, he is representing sort of the voice of the culture. Your view is so arrogantly exclusive, and the fact that you're propagating on television is obnoxiously intolerant. That you have no right to be able to do this, according to Thomas Shales. And of course, you could probably make the same objection for Deuteronomy chapter 6. Bible, who are you to talk about God being the only God? The God of the Bible is the only God that there is. It was interesting, after Thomas Shales wrote that article blasting Brit Hume, I know all these names can get confusing, another dude at the Washington Post wrote an article in response to the one that Thomas Shales wrote. You following me here? Don't get lost in my magic. He says this. (laughs) At the end of his article, he responds this way. Shales, of course, is engaged in proselytism of his own. For a secular fundamentalism that trivializes and banishes all other faiths. So who in this picture is more intolerant? So you see what he's saying? He's basically saying that if you object to the view that your view of God is exclusive and that you shouldn't, you shouldn't tell anybody that, you, you don't have the right to tell anybody that, basically what you're doing is the same thing. You have a view of God that you are telling other people that they can't do. You're you elevating your exclusive, superior view of God over other, other people. Because basically, he's saying, I have a view of God that says anybody can believe in whatever God they want, and that should be cool. But they're saying it in a way that is exclusive, and that this is the superior view. You should have this view, and you can't do your view. You see what I'm saying? You following the thought here? Basically, the point is, is that everybody is making exclusive superior faith claims. Everyone is. It's not, it's not an issue that one person is and one person isn't. We all are. The issue is which one's true. And so the task is for us to actually engage what these claims are and to, and to look at them and, and, and not rule them out on the basis of exclusivity because everybody's making exclusive claims. It's actually looking at the actual truth of the statement. You follow me? So what is the statement? The statement of the, the exclusive claim of the Bible here is that the God of the Bible is the only one there is. Now, let's go back to what I said before, because this is the reason provided for why we are to love him. But why is that the reason? That, the, that God is the only one, why is that the reason for why we are to love him? And I think here's the answer. Because you cannot relate to God until you relate to him as he truly is. You cannot have a loving relationship with God until you actually are relating to him truly. A couple years ago, when I was in seminary, I um, was coordinating with this Christian camp out in Colorado. They, uh, the seminary that I was uh, in school with wanted me to go out and basically promote the seminary. So I was coordinating with this girl in the office out there. Her name was Barbara. And uh, I... Um, I don't know why I remember that, but I remember it. And so me and Barbara were emailing each other, and I'd never met this person before. I never uh, uh, had any relationship with, you know, any contact with her before, but I knew that she was, kind of, she was my pickup person when I flew into the Colorado airport. 
So weeks go by, arrangements are made, and I'm flying, land in Colorado, have no idea how I'm going to hook up with Barbara. So I go to the baggage claim, because that's where you go when you land somewhere. And I go, and sure enough, there's this sweet little old lady holding a sign that says, Matt. And so that's my name. And so I went up to her, and uh, I was like, Barbara, hey. And so she puts down her sign and gives me a hug. And I'm thinking, okay, we're, you know, we're Christians. We, kind of, we can hug each other, and it's not weird. And uh, you know, but, but the, the embrace was a little bit longer than it should have been. And, you know, it was feeling a little strange. And then she releases me, but she's still holding on to me. And then she starts touching my face and saying, Matt, you have changed so much. And I realized at this point, this is not Barbara anymore that I'm holding. And so I have to, I have to inform Barbara that I'm not the Matt that she is looking for, which was a very awkward thing to do in and of itself because now she's got to pick up her sign again and I've got to sit there and wait for my baggage. So we're kind of still sitting here next to each other after, after holding each other. And my, my point is this. Knowing who somebody is has radical implications on how you relate to them. And the Bible is, you have to know who the real God is before you can relate to Him in love. And, and if you are relating to God, and it is not the God of the Bible, then you are not relating to God yet. You are relating to something that you have manufactured and called God, but it is not the, the real God, the living and the true God, the God of Scripture, Yahweh Himself. So that's the first question. Why should we love God? Because He is the only one there is. But of course this raises another question. To what extent should I love him then? To what extent should I love this God? And I think that this passage uh, answers that question for us in, in verses 5 through 9. Basically, the answer is provided in two different ways. That you are to love God with every part of you and love God with every part of your life. So here's the first one. Love God with every part of you. Verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, the Bible is not just chopping you up into three different pieces, your, your, your heart and your soul and your strength, and saying, okay, love God with those three parts, but don't love God with any other part of you. No, basically, this is a, this is a, a comprehensive view of saying, love God with everything that you are, the way that you think, the things that you think, the way that you feel, the things that you do. Love God with every conceivable aspect of your existence. But I want you to also see that this doesn't just sort of... Moses isn't all about just some interior spirituality, just some, some inside uh, spiritual affections for God. He wants you to love God with every part of your life as well. So here it is, verse 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now basically, uh, when it says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, he's just summarizing the, the, the commandments of basically the whole book of Deuteronomy, which is kind of squished into love God with your heart, soul, and strength. And then he says, and I want you to impress these commands into every conceivable aspect of your existence. Now, I'm really indebted to Tim Keller here because he kind of brought this point out, but this is, this is basically what he says. When this talks about having the law of, of God's love uh, in the home and out on the road, this means to apply it to your private life as well as to your public life. 
When it says to write them, uh, you know, bind them on your head, uh, head and, and on your hand, this means to apply it to the way that you think and to the things that you do, the things on the inside and the things on the outside. It says when you go to bed and when you uh, get up, this is your entire waking life. And then the last two things, write the laws on the doorposts of your home means to apply it to your family. But to write it on the, door, on the, on the gates of the city, on the, on the doorposts of the city means to apply it to every dimension of society. So you see what he's saying. Every conceivable aspect and facet of your existence is to be taken up with the task of loving God. The way that you relate to your roommate, the way that you relate to your family, the things that you think, the things that you feel, the things that you do, the, the university as a whole, every conceivable aspect that you can think of is to be taken up with the task of loving God. Over the break, Christmas break, I was in Dallas, which is where I grew up, Dallas, Texas. And if you've ever gone back home to a place, like if, if you've gone out and about, and uh, you know, you, you're, you're at college and you come back home, and you haven't been around for you know, four to six months or whatever, you start to notice all the little, maybe some of the changes that have been made in the city that you grew up in. And, or maybe you see some things that sort of remind you of memories that you've totally forgotten about. And so this happened to me. I was driving around Dallas over the break, visiting the fam, and came across a, the Pizza Hut um, corporate headquarters center, one, one, of the headquarter, one of the corporate headquarters of, of Pizza Hut in, uh, in Dallas. And it brought back this memory I've totally forgotten about. When I was in high school, <laughs> I um, did a taste test for that Pizza Hut in that corporate office uh, one time. Basically, you sit down and they gorge you with pizza and pay you 20 bucks for your feedback on it, which is like the greatest job ever for a high school student. And I remember the thing that they were trying to promote and figure out like demographically, which was going to, how, how we would promote it. They were tinkering around with the extreme cheese pizza. And uh, you may, I don't know if they ever did it. You may have, you may remember uh, the extreme cheese pizza, but I, I tasted five different versions of it. And the last one <laughs> was this. I'm not making this up. I'm actually going to describe the pizza. It was a layer of crust on the bottom, cheese, another layer of crust, sauce, and then like extra, tre- extra cheese on top of that. They went even further. This was stuffed crust pizza. So they stuffed, you know, stuffed the uh, crust with cheese as well. And on top of the crust uh, had sprinkled Parmesan cheese baked into, like on top of visibly the crust. And it gets worse. <laughs> you know those cubes of cheese that you have in like toothpicks at, uh, at dinner parties or whatever? They sprinkled those on top like they were pepperonis. I'm not joking. And so some of them were half kind of baked into the cheese. Some of them, you know, like protruding from the top, just like you take these massive bites of just nothing but cheese in your mouth. It was disgusting. And it had other effects on the digestive system as well. Um, but what Moses is saying... It's basically the same thing that those Pizza Hut dudes were doing. It's find every conceivable nook and cranny of your life and stuff it with the love of God. Use every conceivable aspect of your life and, and find ways that it can be taken up with the task of loving God. So this passage is unashamedly saying, find every part of your existence and make sure that it is taken up with the task of loving God. Which means that for you and me, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Where in our lives... Are we not doing this? Do you love God in your thought life? In the things that you think about? The ways 
in the places that your mind naturally gravitates towards and the ways in the places that your mind starts to fantasize about? Are you loving God there? Are you loving God in the way that you relate to the internet? Or the way that you relate to your roommate? Or the way that you relate to people of the opposite sex? Or the way that you see people of various ethnicities on campus? Are you loving God in those places as well? Are you loving God in the way that you relate to your parents? Loving God has to be taken up with every conceivable aspect of your existence. And so another question is, do you love God only on Wednesday nights or only on Sunday mornings? I know how easy it is to come in here and be a Christian and sing and do your thing and then leave and like a, a, it's like a switch gets flipped and it's like you weren't even here in the first place. Or do you just hit pause on loving God when the weekend comes or when Thursday or Friday night rolls around and you're hanging out with friends that don't necessarily love God and you don't feel like you need to love God around them? Are you loving God in those areas and in those times of your life? Or are you just constantly hitting pause on loving God over and over and over? What I want you to see is that what this passage is saying is that loving God is not just a spiritual feeling. It is not just some sort of intense devotional affection that you have. It is a way of being. It is an action. It is who you are. It, it, it trickles down to every aspect of who you are, your singleness, your studies, your sexuality. Loving God applies to all of those things, and, and all the various facets of your life make up a theater by which this is what it looks like to display what it means to love God. I know that some of you are like, yeah, that is me. I love God. I'm totally devoted to Him. I'm excited about Him. And yet you're mean to your roommate, and you don't go to class, and you don't call your parents. And that is not what the Bible calls loving God. Loving God is taken up with every conceivable aspect of your existence. And so the question that you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, is where practically in our lives are we not doing this? And just ask God to show you those places. Because he will. He will show you. And then ask him, okay, help me love you here. And he really will. But of course, this raises a third question. And the last question is, how in the world do we do this? How do we love God like this? Like what Deuteronomy 6 is talking about? Well, I want to suggest two ways. We love God by learning the skill of love, and we love God as we are motivated by His grace. Those are the two ways. Here's the first one. Loving God is a skill. We love, we, we love God by learning the skill of love. Maybe you noticed it. Uh, love is a command in verse 5. And maybe that threw some of you, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. I mean, it's like it's a command. It's an imperative. And so some of you may be thinking, how can you command love? Isn't love supposed to be spontaneous and, and authentic? And if it's commanded, then it's not genuine. So why does the Bible command you to love God? Now, I think here's the reason. It's because the Bible assumes that we need help with this. The Bible assumes that this does not come easy. Loving God is something that must be learned. The language of verse 7, when it says, impress them on your children, if you're looking at different translations, some of them may say, uh, teach them to your children. The actual word there in Hebrew is the same word for chisel, etch, like etching and carving something into stone. And basically the idea is uh, the command to love God needs to be etched. It needs to be worked into something that is hard, like stone. And it needs to be carved and etched in there. And this is why it says, uh, drill this stuff basically into your children. Drill this into your own heart as as you're out and about and as you're going on hikes and as you're sitting in class. Make sure that you are etching and drilling the command to love God into your heart because it is not easy. Loving God is what we were created to do, and it is natural. 
But because of sin, because of the fact that we are, we are fallen sinful people, our natures are broken. And therefore, we are oriented and directed away from him. And so we need all the help in the world that we can to constantly realign and reorient our hearts back to him. And so I just want to ask, what steps can you be proactively taking to etch the command of, of, love in, of loving God into your own heart and into your own life? I mean, we can brainstorm and think of different ways that we can do this. One of the things for you may be, I need to sit down and, and, and square out 10 or 15 minutes where I'm just alone with, with God reading the Bible. Do this in the morning, do this at night, just having some sacred time where you're sitting down and actually trying to etch the, the, the word of God into your heart. Maybe for some of you, it's getting involved in a small group of just gathering around the Bible with other people who are struggling to love Jesus just like you are and, and, and doing it together. Maybe uh, for some of you, it might be writing little, um, you know, as, as cheesy as it, as it may sound, writing little uh, passages of Scripture and, you know, put, hanging them up on your mirror or, or your dashboard to help you remind yourself to love God. This is something that uh, my wife did, and it was really helpful for her. She would have these little scripture passages on her mirror, so when she wakes up in the morning, she sees it and you know, is reminded, oh, the first thing of my brain should be to go towards loving God instead of think of everything I've got to do today. Maybe for some of you, it's just saying, hey, grab two or three fa- friends, come over to your apartment, come over to your dorm, and say, okay, once a week, we're, we're going to get together and just share what's going on in our life and pray for each other. Because it is hard to do this by ourselves. And we need other people to gather around us to help us etch the the law of loving God into our hearts. And I know you need this because I know I need this. It's not easy. Loving God is a skill that we have to learn. So that's the first thing. But the second way that this scripture helps us on what it means to to love God is that we, we love God as we are motivated by his grace. Now, if you notice, this whole thing is kind of directed to parents Parents, you know, teach this to your children, write this on the door frames of your houses, write this on the door frames of the city. And here's the really interesting thing about this is because if you remember, they just been, people of Israel have just been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. They don't have houses. They don't have a city. They have tents. They have sandals. You know, they, they, they don't have the stuff that this is talking about. This is talking about when you move into the promised land and you have houses, write these things on the door frames of your houses, I want you to think with me for a second. Why would this have been so unbelievably important for an Israelite to hear, I've got to write something on the doorframe of my house? Well, you remember the story, right? People of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, slaves in Egypt under intense oppression, and God powerfully rescues them. He He intercedes into time and space and judges sin and evil with what? The ten plagues, right? You remember this, Prince of Egypt story. And uh, the last plague, uh, God himself comes with the, the, the angel to kill all the firstborn of everything that is living in Egypt. And what did he tell his people to do? The way that you are going to be spared of this is go find a lamb. Go find a, a lamb without blemish and slaughter it. And then take the blood of that lamb and spread it over the doorposts of your house. Same exact word in Hebrew as the word here. Now, why did he do that? Because out of God's grace, he says, I will accept a substitute. Out of complete kindness of you who are just as guilty as the Egyptians, I'm going to punish this lamb in your place. You will not receive the punishment the lamb will. And when you take shelter underneath its blood, you will be liberated and you will be freed. And so what happens? God does this 
powerfully rescues his people by complete grace. They're going through the wilderness for 40 years, and here they are on the edge of the promised land, and this is what Moses is saying. Write these laws on the door frames of your house. So the people of Israel, do they deserve God's favor? Of course not. Were they just as guilty as the Egyptians? Absolutely. Should they or could they have been slaughtered underneath God's wrath and underneath God's judgment? Of course. But out of God's kindness, he says, I'm going to accept a substitute in your place. And out of complete grace, he saves them. And so when they write the law on the doorposts of their house in the promised land, they are to be reminded that there was first blood on the doorposts of their house in Egypt. Before there was the duty of the law, there was the blood of grace because of this lamb. Now, by the time you get to the New Testament, if you kind of fast forward through the story of Scripture, you get to this really interesting place in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul, who's the guy who wrote it, is talking about like some crazy sexual deviance that's going on in the church. Like, really crazy. Check it out, 1 Corinthians 5. It's rated R. And he says this. He's telling them, y'all need to clean this up, and he's, and, he's, and he's instructing them on why to do it. And he says, for Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You think, what? Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed? What are you talking about? He's referring to Jesus as the Passover lamb. Now, what does that mean? When Jesus goes to the cross, and he is being beaten and stabbed and pierced, and, and, and blood is pouring out of him, he is, the, he is acting as the real lamb, as the true substitute. He is really taking God's wrath. He is really taking God's judgment so that everybody who, who by faith finds shelter underneath his sacrifice by complete grace, God says, I will not punish you because I have already punished this lamb. All the lambs in the Old Testament were simply just shadows and, and types and kind of previews of the real lamb that was coming, Jesus himself. And so when we look at this, uh, motivated by complete grace, we are taking refuge in the sacrifice that he has already made. So why do, we, why do we love God? Why do we continue to try and etch all the laws of God and commands of God to love him into our hearts? Why do we do this? Are we motivated by guilt that uh, we've got to love God or we'll be a bad Christian? No. Do we love God out of fear? I've got to love him or he's going to smack me? He's going to get me? No. We love him by complete gratitude because of what he has already done in our life. Complete, we are saved by complete grace. Nothing that we could have done. Unlovable people like us that God himself has loved in this way makes us want to love him back. So, okay. Let's go back to that table. All that stuff from your life. All your internet history and your cell phone bills and all your financial records out on that table. I want you to look at it. And I want you to ask yourself three questions. Why should I love God? Because he's the only one and he is living and he is true. To what extent should I love God? Everything you see on the table, every part of you and with every part of your life. And how do you do it? How do you love God this way? You love God by learning the skill of love and by being motivated by his grace. And I really do pray that God would be kind to make us the type of people, the people in this room, you and me, the people that love God like this, because this is really what we were made for. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a taste of your grace, that we would be motivated by nothing but gratitude and joy for what you have done for us to love you like this, not because it is a burden, but because it is the thing that makes us the most alive. 
to be, the, to, to be the most human is to love you in this way. And we pray that you would give us the grace to do it. Give us eyes to see the gospel, to see the cross, that we, by complete grace, would be moved to love you in this way. Because we are unlovable, and yet you have loved us very well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.